Hi guys, it's Amber and I just wanted to record a little extra intro. I've actually already done the introduction, but you see last week I launched my Patreon and I have been so surprised and touched because actually a number of people have already signed up. So I just wanted to start the episode by saying a massive thank you to those people. So Karen, thank you so much. You were the first. That was amazing. Jennifer, Cheryl, M. Mochella. What does the M stand for? I do not know. Alexandra and of course Maria. Guys, thank you so much. And if you would like to help support the show and keep it coming, then go on over to Patreon. I'll put a link in the show notes. Or if Patreon is not for you, then tell a friend or leave a review. I appreciate it all. Now, without further ado, let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome back to Pan Am. I'm your host, Amber, and if you're new to the show, then welcome. And if you're a faithful listener, then welcome back. If this is your first listen, then let me explain more. Pan Am is a podcast where I endeavour to discover hidden morsels of Paris's history, which are, as I like to call them, hidden in plain sight. Intriguing stones, unusual remnants still visible, or statues that tell a story that might otherwise be rather forgotten or overlooked. I'm especially fond of the darker stories, and Paris has plenty. Through this podcast, I hope to learn more about the city I love and share my insights with you. In today's episode, my attention has been captured by a gesture, a finger, in fact, the pointing finger of the sculpture of Danton, causing me to wonder why and where he's pointing or rather what he's pointing at. And I have not been disappointed with my discoveries. So come with me as we go back to the time of the revolution and examine the unlovely face and complicated story of Georges-Jacques Danton, one-time hero of the revolution, only to then be turned on by his former allies and sentenced to death. His famous last words to the executioner before he was guillotined were, don't forget to show them my head, it's worth it. And I think he was probably right. So come with me to find out more about Danton, the man, the statue and the finger. Here we are in the 6th arrondissement at the Carrefour de l'Odeon, which was once the heart of revolutionary Paris and where all the famous movers and shakers lived and met. We've already been here. You might recall that it was in the Cour de Commerce Saint-André that the prototype of the guillotine was made, where Marat lived and wrote his inflammatory paper L'Ami de Peuple, and of course, where they would all gather at Paris's oldest café, which is still there to this day, the Procope. Cour Saint-André was at the time of the revolution much longer than it is today. However, it was partly demolished to make way for the Boulevard Saint-Germain. Today, at roughly where his house would have been at number 20, stands a statue of Danton, one of the most famous and recognisable figures from the French Revolution, but a figure that nonetheless divides opinion. There have certainly been some sympathetic depictions of him, perhaps most famously in the 1983 film Danton, where he's played by recently disgraced national treasure Gérard Depardieu. Gérard gives plenty of rousing speeches, none more so than at the trial, where he flounces and denounces the cruel and cold Robespierre and others like him. Je croyais pouvoir freiner... La tempête de la révolution, je pensais que c'était souhaitable et je le crois encore. In the clip you just heard, he said, I thought I could stop the storm of the revolution. 
I thought it was desirable, and I still believe it. He goes on to say that they've got no limits, that they have forgotten the principles of the revolution, and through the fear of tyranny returning, they themselves have become tyrants. Their soif d'idéal ne connaît aucune limite. Ils ont établi une dictature nouvelle plus féroce encore que l'ancienne. Par crainte du retour des tyrans, ils sont devenus tyrans. This rejection, or at least attempt to temper the worst excesses of the revolution, is quite an important part of his legacy, and indeed part of the reason he has a statue here today in central Paris, and yet other famous faces from the revolution don't. Because so many of the key players of the revolution are forever tarnished by their involvement in the terror, none more so than Robespierre, although why he has a metro named after him must surely be an episode for another day. Danton is also a larger-than-life character, and I suspect that the French quite like many of his qualities, his passion, his rhetoric and his overall forcefulness. So when the centenary of the French Revolution approached, Danton was settled on as the acceptable face of the revolution, and his likeness was cast. However, although for some he was great, for others he was a corrupt, self-serving opportunist, and, regardless of his stance on the terror, was nonetheless to blame for the deaths of many innocent people. So let's find out more about him. Now I said he's one of the most memorable figures of the time, and I know that the French Revolution can be confusing. I personally find it baffling at times. There are lots of meetings, lots of groups, lots of clubs, lots of back and forth, and I find myself just asking, who has the power? Do they still have it? Where's the king? What's he doing? Why has he not made a run for it? Who are the sans-culottes? Where are they culottes? It gets very complex and, if I'm honest, a bit boring at times and then something terribly violent happens. Sort of boringness and bloodshed. But one man that is anything but boring, confusing or forgettable is Danton. So let me introduce him to you. Georges-Jacques Danton was a very tall, barrel-chested man with a voice like thunder, the loudest voice in France, apparently. He also had an impressive, or at least imposing, somewhat necklace physique. And he was by all accounts the life and soul of the party, any party, all parties. He enjoyed drinking, spending and womanising. He was popular, although he was not beautiful to behold. Unfortunately, as a baby, he was attacked by a bull, which crushed his nose and left his upper lip deformed. This happened, unbelievably, not once, but twice. His father died when he was very young, so I can only presume that his mother was just too busy to keep an eye on all of her offspring as she managed the farm. Later, he then got smallpox, which left him scarred and pockmarked. So scars upon scars, really. So he definitely stood out in a crowd. Now, he was a brilliant, spontaneous orator, and that massive voice of his made sure that everyone heard it. And this was a time when making speeches was essential. That's really how people stood out and literally got heard. He spoke many languages, and he was able to achieve a staggering amount in a relatively short amount of time. He was only 35 years old at the time of his execution, and had only been in public life roughly five years. He'd originally started his career in Reims as a lawyer before moving to Paris and working as a member of the Royal Council. In other words, he was working for the king. 
But following the storming of the Bastille, he became involved in politics and he moved quickly up the ladder, becoming Minister of Justice at his highest point. But of course, it didn't end well for him. Now, he was a passionate man. Some say a man governed by his passions. So let me take a detour from his political life into his private life to give you an idea. His wife, Antoinette Gabrielle, who he had met when she was waitressing at her parents' café, sadly died in childbirth along with his fourth child. On hearing the news, as he was away at the time, he rushed back to Paris and was beside himself with grief. He had to see her again, to ask for her forgiveness and to say goodbye. Because although he loved her, he had not been faithful to her and it seems did not make her very happy. So he went to see an artist to beg him to make a model of his beloved wife. Impossible, the artist reasoned. We would need to make a mould of her face for that to be possible. But she's dead and buried these last three days. But Danton insisted. He was distraught. He must have her, or at least a likeness of her, with him. He offered the artist money and pleaded with him, and finally persuaded him to accompany him that very night to the cemetery. On a side note, the artist was Claude-André Dessin, himself quite a fascinating character. Dessin was born deaf and was a former pupil of L'Abbé du Lep, a priest who'd opened the world's first free school for the deaf and developed a form of sign language. Some of his works are even kept at the Louvre. So the two of them went to the cemetery St Catherine, where she was buried, in what today is the 13th arrondissement. Sadly, it's impossible for us to retrace his steps as the cemetery no longer exists. It was closed in 1824 and a simple plaque is all you'll see today at 51 Boulevard Saint-Marcel. As a side note, bodies of those drowned in the Seine were often sent here and you can learn more about that on my episode of The Morgue. But back to downtown. So we left them at the cemetery gates. It was February, probably cold and dark, but Danton managed to persuade the Guardian to let them in. Maybe the Guardian recognised such a famous and unforgettable face. Maybe it was the power of Danton's grief, his famous oratory skills, which finally helped to persuade him. But nonetheless, he let them in. He probably presumed that Danton wanted to say one final goodbye to his wife, to see her tomb one last time. But... When he reached her tomb, he demanded to see her, that her tomb be opened up right then. Luckily, the marble had not yet been fixed in place, and so after some effort, they were able to remove Gabrielle's body. Upon seeing her face, he fell to his knees and took her in his arms, embraced her cold grey lips and begged, weeping for her forgiveness, for all the wrongdoings, for everything that he'd done to upset her. It was an emotional scene. Dessin then got on with the rather ghoulish task of making Gabrielle's death mask, which he then used to create a startlingly accurate commemorative bust, so alike that it caused quite the scandal in Paris. Should you like, you can still go and see her bust at the Chateau de Visille, a museum dedicated to the French Revolution. I've not been myself, but I'd love to go, and I'll put some pictures on my website, should you like to see. Now, ironically, or sadly, however, as to Gabrielle herself, we cannot be so sure. The cemetery closed, as I said, and it took time removing the remains. Some of them went to the catacombs, some of them went to Père Lachaise, but it seems they didn't move them fast enough. The Boulevard Saint-Marcel cut through this old neighbourhood, and it seems it may have simply buried parts of the cemetery. 
In 1900, Roadworks uncovered a number of human remains and gravestones. So, tread carefully should you be in this neighbourhood. You never know who might be beneath your feet. Now, before you get too emotional at Danton's grand romantic gesture, I'll end with this. He had two other living children who were being looked after by a nanny, one Louise Gelet, and four months after his wife's death, Danton married the then 16-year-old Louise. Life goes on, I suppose was his motto. Ten months later, of course, she would be widowed as his life came to an abrupt end. After being widowed, Louise remarried and apparently wanted nothing more to do with Danton and refused to have his name pronounced in her presence. As to his children, it seems they were sent to live with Danton's mother and I can only hope avoided any incidents with bulls. So this is Danton, the man, and I'm sure you can see why he was such an exceptional figure at the time, or indeed any time. But now let's turn to Danton, the statue. The statue itself shows him standing dressed in some snug trousers, boots and a military-looking coat. At his feet, two soldiers look up at him. He looks powerful, in charge, a man of action, which seems fitting. His head is thrown slightly back, his mouth open as if giving an order or one of his famous speeches, and his right arm stretches out, his finger pointing eastward. What is he motioning to? Why did the sculptor put him in this attitude? What, if anything, do they want us to bring to mind with that pointing index finger? Let us first examine the concrete evidence before us. The inscription directly below his feet reads À Danton, la ville de Paris, 1889. To Danton, from the city of Paris, 1889. Simply put, because no more explanation is needed, 1889 is, of course, a hundred years since the French Revolution. Below this, it reminds us that this is where he used to live, on this very spot. So this is why he's here. But what is he pointing to? Again, let's look at the statue before us. Inscribed on Danton's left-hand side, on the plinth, are the words Après le pain, l'éducation est le premier besoin du peuple. After bread, people's primary need is education. A noble sentiment, and another quote from one of his speeches at the assembly. So perhaps he's pointing towards the medieval university, La Sorbonne, which is just up the road from the statue. However, if we look on the other side, on Danton's right, there is another, more famous quote. Pour vaincre les ennemis de la patrie, il nous faut de l'ordesse, encore de l'ordesse et toujours de l'ordesse. To defeat the enemies of France, we need audacity. Or another way of saying it is bravery. More bravery, always bravery. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. A big reason as to why Danton was chosen to represent the revolution for this important anniversary was because he had come to represent patriotism and bravery in the face of foreign, particularly Prussian, aggression. In 1792, so the time of the revolution, France had been at war with Prussia. Danton was a minister of justice at the time, and it was Danton who called for courage in this very speech now chiselled into the stone under his outstretched arm. He convinced the assembly, who'd been on the brink of fleeing, to stay in Paris, and he helped to galvanise the people of Paris as well. Shortly afterwards, the Prussians were indeed vanquished, although 
Danton's speech or really any of his actions don't really seem to be the reason for Prussian defeat, but nonetheless he proved himself brave and committed. Now let's jump forward nearly a hundred years to 1871. And the tables are turned. France suffers defeat at Prussian hands and Paris is laid to siege. So no wonder people's minds cast back to Danton and they chose him as a symbol of the revolution. He was able to do what Louis Napoleon could not. It explained why this speech is remembered, written into the stone, and it also helps explain the presence of the soldiers who share the plinth with him. So where is he pointing? Well, he's surely directing these soldiers eastwards to the front, pointing out the enemy. But of course, it's not that simple. As I said, he's a controversial figure. So let's see what else we can learn from this statue. Firstly, let us reconsider the choice of placing him here. After all, he could have been put anywhere, but he stands at the spot where he once lived. That does make sense. But although he did live here, it was also here where, on the 30th of March, 1794, the police burst into his house and arrested him for theft and corruption. Six days later, he was guillotined at the Place de la Révolution, today Place de la Concorde. Following his execution, his body was buried without ceremony in one of the cemeteries created especially for victims of the revolution. So was he corrupt? Did he have a fair trial? It doesn't seem that way. But does it mean he was innocent? That's not sure either. In any case, there's much debate about it. Those that support him say, no, look at his modest life, his commitment to the cause. Others point out how much he liked to spend and not really be able to be held accountable for it. Danton himself left very little in way of written records. It seems he actually had some trouble writing, so it's hard to get an insight into his personality or his true thoughts and feelings. But nonetheless, by putting the statue here where he used to live, it reminds both his place of residence, of course, but also the place where he was arrested. So then with this in mind, maybe he's pointing to the conciergerie where he and so many others were tried. The conciergerie where Louis XVI was also tried and where Danton, once his employee, a man who once claimed to be a monarchist, voted to have him executed. There is yet another possibility. And when talking about Danton, the man and his career, it is an event that cannot be overlooked and is always linked to him. The September massacres. Now, the September massacres took place over five days, from the 2nd to the 6th of September 1792, where between 1,100 and 1,600 people lost their lives, men, women and, sadly, children, in a terrible foreshadowing of the terror. They were killed so brutally that the guillotine, by comparison, would indeed seem like the enlightened machine that Dr Guillotin had intended. On Monday, September the 10th, 1792, the Times of London ran a story covering the events happening in France. And just a warning, it's not pleasant. Here's a quote. The streets of Paris strewed with carcasses of the mangled victims are becoming so familiar to the sight that they are passed by and trod on without any particular notice. The mob think no more of killing a fellow creature who is not even an object of suspicion than wanton boys would of killing a cat or dog. Now, I'm sure you're hoping that this is an exaggeration, but I'm sure it doesn't even get close to the true horror. And for some, the finger of blame for these events points directly at Danton. So let us get back to his finger. He does seem to be pointing down the road towards Place Maubert. 
At the time of the revolution, on this spot at Place Maubert, you would have found the 14th century Carmes Monastery. It was closed in 1790 and later demolished in 1811 to make way for a market. Today, it's where the police station of the 5th arrondissement is. The Rue des Carmes is our only reminder that it was ever here. But when the monastery was closed, the priests were then moved to the Carmes prison, which was also a former monastery, which is just around the corner on Rue Vaugirard. Today, the building still exists, and it's part of the Carmes Seminary within the Catholic Institute. Prison was for priests who refused to take an oath of loyalty to the new government and accept the religious reforms of the revolution. Danton, by pointing to where the monastery used to be, brings to mind the fate of the priests who were once there. And what was that fate? Well, before we get into the horrid details, let's put this into a little bit of a historical context. So here is a very quick outline of some of the major events leading up to the massacre. By 1792, the Bastille, of course, had been stormed. The royal family, who had been living in Versailles, were moved to the Tuileries Palace and were living more or less under house arrest. Louis XVI had accepted, ostensibly, to be a constitutional king, meaning that he was no longer the big man in charge, but shared power with the government. But he still did have some power. He then somewhat undermined the people's faith in his commitment to the new order when, in 1791, he and his family made a rather rubbish attempt to flee, only to be arrested at Varennes and brought back to Paris. Meanwhile, the rest of Europe looked on in horror. What are the French up to? You can't just go arresting a king and queen, it might spread nasty ideas. So on the borders of France, war was brewing and it seemed only a matter of time before a coalition of foreign powers and French monarchists who were in exile got together to crush this ridiculous new-fangled constitution or whatever it was the French were up to. However, France beats them to it and declares war on Austria and Prussia, who had been looming menacingly on their borders. Now, Louis must have been thrilled and convinced that the cavalry were on their way, as this coalition would surely sweep into Paris and restore him to his former glory. But the war starts, and it goes very badly for France. So back in Paris, not wanting to admit defeat, the powers that be started spreading the idea that this initial defeat was a revolt was the result of a conspiracy and that wicked monarchists and hidden factions were plotting to undermine the revolution, spreading this idea of the enemy within. Now, this spread fear and paranoia, but there was also a real reason to be fearful. The Duke of Brunswick, the head of the Prussian army, made a clear threat that if the king and queen were harmed in any way and not immediately restored to power, then there would be trouble. The army would sweep in, burn Paris to the ground and generally loot and plunder and get up to all no good. This was the so-called Brunswick Manifesto and he gave it in July. Now, the Parisians are a very contrary lot and essentially called Brunswick's Bluff. And in August, instead of restoring the king and queen to power, they stripped the royal family of all their power and imprisoned them in the temple prison. Now, the reason they did this was not just because of the threat 
from Brunswick and his manifesto. And in fact, it's a pretty significant step overall in the French Revolution. For some people, this can be considered as the second French Revolution, the total removal of power from the monarchy and, as we shall see, taking of that power in a very real sense into the hands of the people. Now, remember, the people worried not only about the enemy at the borders, but also the so-called enemy within. Now, whether this was a real threat or not, it seems dubious. But the result was that as well as moving the royal family to the temple prison, they started carrying out house raids and rounding up anyone they suspected of being a royalist or a sympathiser. Anyone that they thought might make an alliance with the approaching Prussians and put them all into prison. And then everything came to a head on the 2nd of September. On the 2nd of September, calamity happens. Verdun, the last fortress between the Allied army and Paris, fell. It seemed that the Prussian army would inevitably descend on Paris and surely bloodshed and repercussions would swiftly follow. We can only imagine the tense, claustrophobic, terrifying atmosphere in Paris at the time. And there was certainly panic at the ministry. Many wanted to flee, fearing their lives and the future of the revolution. But Danton, in that famous speech, that same one written up there on his statue, gave them courage and convinced them to stay. Danton wanted the Parisians, the sans-culottes and the new commune, to go to the front to fight and save the revolution. But they were worried about leaving their homes and families vulnerable to attack. They felt that if they left and the Prussians invaded, that these traitors would release these monarchists who would take their revenge by killing their families. So they were hesitant. They didn't want to go. Now, sadly, the solution to this problem came about that very afternoon. A convoy of prisoners, mainly priests, were being moved from the Hôtel de Ville prison to the Saint-Germain prison, when the fear and atmosphere of impending doom reached a breaking point. The prisoners, who were seen as traitors to the revolution, were attacked by a mob, and for the most part, brutally killed. Now, there were nine main prisons in Paris at this time, keeping these so-called enemies, and the killing quickly spread to all of them. At one moment, the commune did step in to put in place some semblance of order, basically setting up a kangaroo court which tried the accused and, for the most part, found them guilty, although very occasionally not guilty, and then met out justice instantly. They were sent directly into the hands of a waiting mob who would beat them to death with clubs and pikes and such like. These men were paid for their patriotic work. And this is exactly what happened at the Carmes prison. Remember, this is where Danton is pointing to, to the old Carmes monastery, which was closed, and those priests moved to the Carmes prison. On the afternoon of the 2nd of September, 1792, an armed mob descended upon that prison. The priests were outside in the gardens at the time of the attack and a contemporary account describes the mob as 20 hungry, bloodthirsty tigers unleashed in a pen against the innocent victims given over to their rage. Some of the priests were able to climb a tree and escape over a wall, which enraged the mob further. And of this initial spate of killing, the commune did here step in and set up a court just inside the monastery. The priests were judged, and if found guilty, which most of them were, they were immediately sent outside back into the gardens to be hacked and beaten to death. 
The exit that they took still exists, and I'll put a picture of it on my website, and it has these five little steps leading down to the garden. So they become known as the famous five steps, and today they bear a little inscription in Latin meaning, there they fell. Today you're able to visit the Institute. You can start by seeing the lovely 17th century chapel, which was the first dome building in Paris, but then you are able to also go down into the crypt and see some of the remains of the priests. Now, although all the bodies of the unfortunate victims at the time were just dumped in a pit, after the revolution, a Carmelite nun brought and restored the seminary, and she was able to gather up some of those who had been slain, and some of the bones still bear visible marks, attesting the violence that they suffered. If you're unable to go and visit, you can just see outside a plaque at number 70 Rue Vaugirard, which marks where the old monastery used to be. And it states here that 114 priests, although I have read that there were more, were killed here. So that was the Carmes prison. Like I said, there were about nine other prisons. We don't have time to look at them all, but I would like to just consider one more. So let's go to a different prison and head over to the Marais, to the site of the Prison de la Fosse. Now there were two prisons here, the Grande Fosse and the Petite Fosse. The Grand was for men and the Petit for women. It was a huge 16th century building which was quite dilapidated by the time of the revolution and had become emblematic of prisons, certainly in literature. Victor Hugo mentions it in Les Miserables, Alexander Dumas in The Count of Monte Cristo and Balzac in Splendours and Miseries of Courtesans. It was demolished in 1845 and the only trace left today is a section of wall that was discovered in 1905. It was the pillar that separated the Petit and Grand Force, and I'll put a picture of it up for you to look at. It just looks like a sort of odd wall emerging from a building, and people just pass by unaware. You can find it on Rue Meller in the 4th arrondissement. Rue Meller is named after Auguste-Emile Meller, a military man who died in 1848. But his name sounds very much like the French word malheur, meaning misfortune, which does seem fitting. Anyway, at the Carmes prison, priests were kept, but at the force, as well as regular prisons, there were political prisoners. One in particular stands out, Princesse de Lambelle. Now, she was a close friend of Marie Antoinette, and she'd been rounded up in the August house raids. The mob descended on the prison. At her trial, she was asked to swear allegiance to France and then swear a hatred for monarchy and the royal family. She said she could do the former, but not the latter. And so she was found guilty and pushed outside before a mob. According to the Times of London, and I quote, the mob offered her every insult. Her thighs were cut across and her bowels and heart torn from her. And for two days, her mangled body was dragged through the streets. End quote. She was also decapitated and her head paraded in front of the Queen's window. The royal family themselves only narrowly escaped the massacre. Apparently when someone burst into the King's chambers, no doubt to haul him off, the King was outraged and gave the intruder quite the earful. His authority was enough to send them packing, at least for now. So was Danton to blame for this massacre? Not exactly. It doesn't seem he ordered these killings, but at Minister of Justice, he did nothing to stop it either. And maybe it did suit him to have those handy, bloodthirsty sans-culottes freed head off to the front to fight the Prussians. Were all those prisoners just collateral damage? 
Is it even possible to really judge him today, bearing in mind how different a time it was then? And more importantly, have we answered our question? Where or why or who is Danton pointing to? Personally, I feel like he's pointing to it all. To the prison, to the conciergerie, to the university, to the front lines and more. By pointing away from himself, it's as if he was implying that it's not his fault, that the blame lies elsewhere. But by pointing, he's also giving directions, claiming responsibility, directing. And so this digit is able to simultaneously point out the troubled history, inconsistencies, triumphs and brutalities of the revolution and Danton's ambiguous role in it. Thank you so much for listening to this quite long episode. If you'd like to see pictures, I'll put them up on Instagram and my website. You can also look at my website for sources and music and further reading. I'll also try, if I get time, to put a map so we can see all the different places I've mentioned in this episode. And should you like to visit them next time you're in Paris? Do subscribe as I'll try to keep the episodes coming, but you never know when they drop. Take care. Bye.